Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Well, it was in 2015 when Gallup did a survey. And in their survey, they discovered uh, that 75% of Americans claim that they are Christians. Now, my question for you is, do you really think that's true? If 75% of Americans are Christians, don't you think our culture would be different? If 75% of Americans are Christians, don't you think a lot of the things we see on social media uh, would be different? It would be radically different. I think the authors of that survey actually maybe sort of confused things a little bit. They confused people who maybe know a little bit about Jesus with those who are actually following Jesus because there is a big difference. In today as we study the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem, uh, that is what we'll find. So I'd like you to take your Bibles out, turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. While you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of uh, just orientation. We know that the Gospel of Mark is divided up into two major pieces. Uh, There is the first ten chapters, which is really Jesus uh, sort of introducing his identity, that he is not just a man, he is the man who is God because he did the things that only God can do. So the first 10 chapters are about the work of Christ, beginning in chapter, or or about the identity of Christ, excuse me, Uh, beginning in chapter 11, uh, this book focuses on the great work of Christ, the great thing he came to do, which is to die on the cross in our place for our sin. And today we find ourselves at the very beginning of chapter 11, which focuses on the great work of Jesus. Uh, last week, or in this last week, we see that what Jesus does, he begins by arriving in the city of Jerusalem. Incidentally, the year, as best we can tell, is 30 AD. The month in the Jewish calendar is the month of Nisan. Uh, by the way, for us, Nisan is a car. Uh, for us, it was the name of a month. Jesus arrived in Jerusalem on the 10th day of the month of Nisan, and he was crucified on the 14th day of the month of Nisan. And you may wonder, why do those kind of uh, details matter? And the reason that those details matter is there's one big overarching uh, point that is made throughout chapters 11 through 16. And that is that this final week of Jesus' life, is intimately known by God. It is intimately planned by God. As we go through these um, chapters, we'll see again and again that what happened toward Jesus was actually prophetically spoken about beforehand. There is tons of prophecy that all focuses on this final week that is all in the Old Testament. Not only is there prophecy, but we find that Jesus himself, as he goes through this week, sort of there's no surprises for him. He knows exactly what will happen to him in this week, and we'll see that this morning. This teaches us actually two very important things. Number one, it's not just the last week of Jesus' life that God has under control. It was all of Jesus' life that God had under control. We just happen to see it very well in that final week. 
but from his birth through his death, God had the whole thing planned. Not only that, but if God had all of Jesus' life under complete control, you know that means that God has your life and my life under complete control. That nothing happens to us that is out of God's plans and that is beyond his ability. Why this is so incredibly important is because in this final week of Jesus' life, it looks like evil is finally winning. It looks like the world is spinning out of control. Jesus, the very Son of God, is going to die. We are going to see the greatest injustice in the history of the world take place. But remember, it was all under God's control. And what we see in this final week is not only does this great injustice take place, but God is so cool, he knows how to take this great injustice and evil and flip it on its head and do the greatest good in the history of the world from it. Because Jesus dies for our sins. Jesus rises to new life. So God, we see, uh, not only has all the details of this final week planned out, but he knows how to take the evil in this final week and flip it on its head and do great good with it. And this is why it's so important for you and me. Because God has everything in your life and my life also under control. When there's evil that is done to us, when there are injustices that are thrust upon us, all hope, my friends, is not lost. God specializes in taking that evil and injustice and flipping it on its head and doing incredible good through it. The things that have been done to us that have been evil, that have been wrong, even the things that have been done to or done by us when we repent of them, God can take them, flip them, and use them for our good and ultimately for his glory. Now, we may not see where the good comes out of it in this life, but for sure we will see it in the next life. When we see him face to face, we will see that he did have a plan for our life, and it was a good plan for our good and for his glory with our life. So we never lose hope. Something else that I should mention to you that is very important to know about this final week is the final week of Jesus' life, which is chapters 11 through 16 of this book, it all takes place during the Jewish feast of Passover. During the feast of Passover, there will be on Friday over 100,000 lambs slain in hope that the blood of those lambs would atone for people's sin. But as we learn from our series, uh, Christmas from the book of Hebrews, and we studied this, we know that the blood of an animal can never cover human sin. All it was was, it was a picture. It was a picture that sin can only be atoned for by death and covered by blood. But the good news is that this Passover would be different. On this Passover, there would be lamb, one lamb that was slain that actually did pay for sin. Not just the sin of one person or not just the sin of all the people who were at that Passover, but the sin of all people for all time and all sin for those who would trust in him. 
Who is that one lamb that was slain who actually effectively took care of sin? Jesus Christ. As it says in John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist says, Behold Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, slain for the sin of the world. Now hopefully you found by now uh, Mark chapter 11, verse 1. I'd like to ask you to stand out of reverence for God's word as we read the key passage that we'll be studying this morning. It's called the triumphal entry. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said. And they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road. And others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. That ends the reading of God's word. You can be seated. Let's begin with a, a little bit of background. We know last week when we were studying the text before this, Jesus was in Jericho and he's on his way to Jerusalem. Jeremy, could you show that map? Uh, this is the map we looked at last week. Uh, Jericho is 17 miles away from Jerusalem and Jesus has now made that trek uh, from Jericho to Jerusalem, it was a 3,500-foot climb. We know that when Jesus was in Jericho, that actually Jesus uh, restored sight to two blind men. Matthew tells us that. But the Gospel of Mark actually just focuses in on one of those blind men. That man's name was Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus, we studied him last week. He didn't just physically receive his sight as a gift from Jesus, but he also had spiritual sight that he could see who Jesus was and that he was desperately in need of grace from him. Last week, we learned that Bartimaeus is sort of the first Christian be before the cross. And it was an incredible story because the story ends with Bartimaeus, it says, joining Jesus and the apostles and following him along the way from that point forward. Well, now Jesus has made the climb from Jericho to Jerusalem, and it's quite a climb. Go ahead and put that next graphic up, Jeremy. This is a little topographical slice for you to show you the direction. You can see how Jericho is below sea level and what it would have been like for Jesus. Uh, right now, he is going to be in the area of the Mount of Olives. 
uh, right there on the top, and you can see there's the Kidron Valley where it goes down and then it goes up again to Jerusalem. So you have approximately a 200-foot difference be between the Mount of Olives and uh, Jerusalem, with the Mount of Olives being slightly higher in location. Jesus, by the way, this time had a large crowd beginning to gather with him, which is going to help make up what is called the triumphal entry that we're about ready to study. This crowd has begun to follow him uh, because they're pilgrims. They've heard about Jesus. Jesus has just restored the sight to Bartimaeus and another blind man, so they want to see with Jesus, hang out with Jesus. But probably most significantly, we learned last week that Jesus had made a special trip to Bethany because of a guy named Lazarus. Uh, he was the brother of Mary and Martha. They lived in Bethany, uh, which is right by the Mount of Olives, and Lazarus had died. And he was like legit dead, not just passed out cold. I mean, they had the guy's funeral. They buried him. I mean, that, you can't get much more dead than being buried. Yet after three days, Jesus came up to the grave and said, Lazarus, come forth. And he came to life. And now he is living in the home of Mary and Martha, his sisters, in Bethany, right next to the Mount of Olives. So you can see everybody wants to visit with Lazarus. Everybody wants to see Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead. So you can imagine the enthusiasm of the crowds growing around Jesus at this point. Well, Jesus has also made it clear that when he goes into the city of Jerusalem, he's not going in to be a political hero, uh, to cast off the Romans like so many people would like him to be. <clears throat> he's made it clear that actually he's going into Jerusalem to die. In fact, he's said this repeatedly to the disciples. We, we look at this earlier in the Gospel of Mark. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. So Jesus is not going into Jerusalem to throw off the Romans. He's already stated he's going in there to be killed by the Romans, which is not what the people want him to do. There has been a fair amount of tension also that has existed between Jesus and the Roman leaders, and we, or excuse me, Jesus and the Jewish leaders, and we don't want to miss that. That tension actually originated back in the beginning of Jesus' ministry. In the Gospel of John, we learn at the beginning of his ministry, he actually cleansed the temple, knocked over all the money changers, cast off the people who were selling animals out of the court of the Gentiles. Uh, next week, by the way, as we continue in the Gospel of Mark, we'll see here at the end of his ministry, he does the exact same thing. He cleanses the temple. But when he did that at the beginning of his ministry, you can imagine the Jewish leaders didn't really have any love for him. 
And then we also learn early in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus was in the area of Galilee and he healed a man with a withered hand in the temple on the Sabbath, no less. The Jewish leaders decided early in his ministry that they needed to bump him off. They needed to get rid of him. This tension between Jesus and the Jewish leaders has existed for the last three years. But Jesus has not gone out of the way to inflame that tension or to make that tension worse. In fact, you may remember earlier in this gospel when he was in Galilee and the Jews wanted to make him king by force. What did he do? He escaped and went away. He wouldn't let them do that. But here, at the beginning of the final week, he does the very opposite. In the triumphal entry, he will allow the people to worship him. He will allow the people to call him the king. Why does he change? Instead of stepping away from the worship of the people, why at this point does he step into the worship of the people? There's a variety of reasons, but I'll tell you one. One is I think he's intentionally trying to irritate the Jewish leaders. It says that uh, the Jewish leaders, they were hoping that somebody would tell them when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem so they could arrest him. But they quickly moved from wanting to just arrest him to wanting to crucify him on Friday, to get rid of him, because the people are wildly excited about him. I think it's time to put our plan into action and we have to bump him off as fast as possible. So, this is all part of God's plan that Jesus would irritate the Jewish leaders to move them into action and part of what irritates them and moves them into action is the wild amounts of praise and worship that Jesus receives as he comes into the city with the triumphal entry. How big was the crowd following Jesus? Now, these are just estimates. And I'm going to say that maybe these estimates are off. I've actually talked to a guy after first service, and he's actually been to Jerusalem, and he's looked at these areas. All I have is books. All I have is scholars. I haven't been there. So I'm doing the best I can. So he says these are probably a little high, but the point is still there. It's going to be big. Here's what uh, some people have said. Some people have said they believe there is possibly up to two million Jews in the vicinity of Jerusalem for Passover. Now, how do we come up with that number? We know 10 years after this, because this is 30 AD, in 40 AD we have in the historical record that it says there was about 255,000 lambs that were slain for Passover. Typically, it was one lamb for every 10 people. So if you just take the decimal point and move it over a little bit, you have around two point, that would be enough lamb to feed 2.6 million people. So we're just doing a little menu math, that's all it is. Now, I can't say for sure if there was two million people in Jerusalem, but I do know there was a lot of people in Jerusalem for Passover. How many people would be in the crowd that is welcoming Jesus in? This is going to be a guess. Uh, between 10,000 to 100,000. 
I don't know. It was a really large crowd. We're going to see later in our message uh, that Luke sort of uses a, a double modifier. So it was a mega large crowd. And Matthew will say the whole city was stirred up when Jesus arrived. If the city is two million people, trust me, it was a big crowd. If the whole city was, was excited when Jesus arrived. Well, how did the last week of Jesus' life unfold? Let me give you a little bit of chronology on how this final week goes. We know that Jesus arrived in, in, in Bethany, where we're going to be talking about today. He arrived there on a Saturday. Bethany was two miles outside of Jerusalem. He would have been staying at the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the Lazarus who was very much alive. And the scripture tells us this happened six days before. John chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. The next day would be Sunday. And it would seem reasonable to assume Sunday then would be the day of the triumphal entry. And we call that Palm Sunday. But John chapter 12 seems to hint to us that it may not have happened that way. And I'm not going to say this is for sure one way or the other. I'm just going to sort of present this to you and let you think this case through a little bit yourself. We know that it was a six-hour walking trip from Jericho to Jerusalem without traffic. Uh, Jesus had a lot of traffic on that walk. We had a huge crowd around him. So it may have taken Jesus longer than six hours to make that climb to get into the area of Bethany. Um, we also know that he, when he arrived that evening that Mary and Martha had a great meal for him. And you can read about that in John chapter 12 where Jesus was anointed. And it says this right afterwards. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now the question becomes, did this large crowd of Jews all show up at the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus on Saturday night? Or what happened was, did they all show up on Sunday after time is taken for this news to spread? Remember, Jesus was not posting on social media his location. People actually had to share this with, by word of mouth. Uh, the decision to bump off Lazarus by the Jewish leaders would be taking place in Jerusalem two miles away. So you have to have time for news to go two miles, them to gather enough of the news, take a decision, and then bring it back. Does this all happen on Saturday night? Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe this actually takes place on Sunday. Whatever you think, it's got to be a bummer if you're Lazarus. I mean, you've been dead once. Jesus brought you back. Now the Jewish leaders want to kill you again because you were dead once. I mean, this has got to be a bummer for him. Then it says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took 
branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. That next day could be Monday, not Sunday. Now, I don't want to mess with tradition. I did a little bit of research, and I know that Palm Sunday and the triumphal envy have been associated together all the way from the 4th century forward in some parts of the church. But I do want to point out that if Jesus' entry into Jerusalem actually took place on a Monday instead of a Sunday, it does solve some of the problems that what often is associated with the final week of Jesus' life. It solves the problem of what is called Silent Wednesday. In the scriptures, we know pretty much what was happening to Jesus on each day of the final week, except when it comes to Wednesday. Uh, None of the gospels say anything about what happened to Jesus Wednesday. And so if he, he has the triumphal entry on Sunday, then you end up with missing data about what happens Wednesday. But if the triumphal entry actually happened on a Monday, all of a sudden, Silent Wednesday goes away. And it lines up like this. Saturday, Jesus arrives in Bethany, has the meal with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Sunday, the large crowd gathers around Jesus, and they also gather around Lazarus. The decision is made that it's time to bump Lazarus off. Monday, the triumphal entry. Tuesday, Jesus curses the fig tree and cleanses the temple. Wednesday, Jesus gives his sermon on the second coming. Thursday is the Passover, arrest, and betrayal. Friday morning, Jesus is the crucifixion begins. Friday he dies and is put in the grave. Saturday he's in the grave and Sunday he rises from the grave. And that was how the final week progresses. Now, another thing that seems to lend itself towards the triumphal entry actually happening on a Monday instead of a Sunday is in the Gospel of John. John is very adamant Uh, that Jesus parallels the Passover lamb in that final week. In fact, John tells us that it's when the Passover lambs were slain on Friday, it's the same time that Jesus died. But earlier in the week, on Monday, is the day when the Passover lambs were selected by the people. And what happens in the triumphal entry? The people select Jesus. So it seems that it wouldn't be unreasonable to assume that uh, the triumphal entry actually happens on a Monday, maybe not a Sunday. Though I'm not going to die on either one of these, but I think it's worth thinking about. Let's go ahead and dive into the text. Jesus entered Jerusalem the way God planned. Now when they drew near to Bethlehem, to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. 
Bethany, we know already, is two miles outside of Jerusalem. Where is Bethpage? The honest answer is we don't know. It is obviously a very small village near that. Bethpage means house of figs, so we pretty much know what was going on there. They were growing figs. And the immediate question we have is, how does Jesus know that there's a cult over there? I mean, how can he have any idea what animal is tied to a post in another town? And I think the answer is, well, he's God, isn't he? God knows the location of every animal in every post, in every place of the world. I told you, Jesus knows everything that is going to happen to him in this week. Nothing happens to him that is a surprise. Then he says this, If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. So Jesus also knows that when they go to do the, uh, the cult jacking, not the carjacking, but the cult jacking, they're going to steal the animal, that people will be upset by it, and Jesus knows what to say to them to, to give them ease and rest. Jesus just needs it, and he'll we return it. And then it goes this way. And they went away and found a colt tied to the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. I think it would have made quite an impression on them that things happened just the way Jesus said they would. The colt was exactly where Jesus said they would find it, People were upset when they took it, just like Jesus said they would be, and he, they said the words Jesus told them, and things would be fine. Now, that may not have meant much to them at that moment, but as that week unfolded, and as Jesus was betrayed, and as the world fell apart, do you think they would keep going back to that thought? Jesus knows. Jesus knew about that cult. Jesus knows about what's going to happen. He told us ahead of time, multiple times, that he would be betrayed and that he was going to die. Nothing in this final week is happening that's a surprise to him and nothing is happening in this final week that's out of control by him. And that goes back to what we learned earlier, isn't it? Nothing is happening in your life and in my life that is a surprise to God. Nothing is happening in your life, in my life, that is out of God's control. And remember, the good news is that what does God love to do? Take evil and injustice and flip it on its head and do great good for you and for me and for his glory through the difficulty in our lives. Now it continues. Jesus entered Jerusalem to the praises of the people. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches they had cut from fields. Now, what they're doing is a makeshift saddle. A a colt is essentially a, a baby donkey. This one is so young that no one has ever ridden on it. He doesn't have a saddle. Maybe they don't make saddles that are that small, so they throw their cloaks on top of it to give him something to ride on. But they're not just throwing their clothes on top of the cult. They're actually also uh, 
throwing their clothes on the ground to give Jesus a sort of red carpet welcome as he comes into the city. Now, what would it have been like for Jesus? Jeremy, go ahead and show me that photo. This would have been a, a view from sort of the top of the, the Mount of Olives looking down into the city. Uh, I'm sure this road probably wasn't there at that time. Uh, but you can get the idea. If you look, you can see the walls of the temple that are still there on the outskirts. Uh, and this is what Jesus would have seen as he began his descent in the triumphal entry. But Jesus didn't just know everything that was going to happen to him that week. So nothing took him by surprise. In the Old Testament, we see lots of prophecy that had foretold exactly how things were going to unfold. Mark, which is one of the shortest accounts of the triumphal entry, doesn't give us a lot of that prophecy, but Matthew, he's often very concerned to show how Jesus fulfills prophecy. So when Matthew tells us this very same thing, he shows us how this is prophecy that is actually fulfilled. Look what it says in Matthew 21. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And then I put the exact quote from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that Matthew was quoting, so you can see how detailed this fulfillment is. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Interestingly, uh, Jesus is entering Jerusalem in, in triumph, coming in as the king. But kings usually don't ride colts. Kings ride war horses. They ride big and powerful animals. But a colt, the foal of a donkey, that's about as small as you can get. In fact, this one is so small, no one has ever ridden on it yet. Jesus is the first one to ride on it. I sort of picture it like Jesus coming into Jerusalem riding a tricycle. Uh, that's what it's like. It's a message of humility. It's a message of peace. It's a message of gentleness, not war and power. There are other Old Testament uh, passages that are sort of fulfilled by this, echoes from the Old Testament. For instance, in 1 Kings chapter 1, 32 through 48, it says, when Solomon was crowned king, he entered Jerusalem riding David's mule to music and rejoicing just like Jesus as he is crowned by the king, by the people. He is entering um, Jerusalem to music and rejoicing. When the people throw their garments on the ground for Jesus to, to ride over, that actually has an Old Testament precedent as well. Jehu, when he was crowned king, this is what happened. When Jehu came out to the servants of his master, they said to him, is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And, they said to, and he said to them, You know the fellow and his talk? And they said, That is not true. Now tell us now. And he said, Thus and so he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste 
every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the, blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. You see that in the Old Testament being echoed again with Jesus' triumphal entry in the New Testament, throwing their clothes on the ground, proclaiming him king. We often call this Palm Sunday, but uh, even though the triumphal entry is recorded in all four Gospels, there is only one Gospel that tells us palms were involved, and that's actually the Gospel of John. It says this, So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, saying, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. The next question we can answer is this. How many people really celebrated Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem? Well, I told you earlier that some scholars have guessed there were two million people there. Uh, maybe there was 10,000 up to 100,000 people celebrating his arrival. I don't know if those numbers are right. The point is, there was a lot of people. And we can find that in Scripture. Look what Luke says about this crowd. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The whole multitude, that little phrase, it's a sort of a double modifier. It's a great many. A lot of people are enthusiastically praising Jesus. Here's Matthew's quote. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The whole city is talking about Jesus and his entry. It was such a big deal. Now, let's briefly look at what the people were saying about Jesus. We know this, it says in uh, Mark 11, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means save now. By the way, Jesus was coming to save them now. He was coming them to save them from an enemy greater than the Romans. He was coming to save them from Satan, sin, and death. This little phrase where it says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that actually is a quote from Psalm 118, verse 26. And the people actually said that same quote about a hundred years earlier to Judas Maccabeus when he went to go free the Jews from the Syrians, to free them from military occupation. Now they're saying the same thing to Jesus a hundred years later to save them possibly from Roman occupation. Well, let's see how this ends. When Jesus arrived at the temple, the praises of the people just disappeared. And he entered Jerusalem, went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, 
as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The scholars talk about this is a very strange ending. You have this huge number of people singing his praises, calling him king. He comes into the city. The whole city is stirred up. And then he gets into the temple. And where are the crowds? Where are all these people that were so enthusiastically cheering for him? He looks around, it's late, and he goes home with the 12, sort of by themselves back to Bethany. Why did they evaporate? The scriptures don't tell us, but I'm just sort of imaginatively imaginatively trying to examine this a little bit. Remember earlier, we talked about the great animosity that existed between the Jewish leaders and Jesus that's been existing for three years Everyone's well aware of it. You have all these people who are enthusiastic for Jesus, singing his praises as he comes in, but by the time he gets to the temple where the Jewish leaders are located, we're like, time to go. Let's leave. I don't want to associate with Jesus publicly because at that point it's going to start to cost me. And what we find is all the praises and all the enthusiasm for Jesus that was sung when he entered was hollow. It was empty. It was just crowds cheering because there were crowds cheering. After all, by the end of the week, this very same crowd will not be cheering his entry, but they will be calling for his death. It turns out that this large crowd was filled with fans of Jesus, but they weren't true followers of Jesus, were they? And I began wrestling with that question. What about me? What about you? Are we just more fans in the crowd, cheering for Jesus because worship is fun, cheering for Jesus because that's what our friends do? But when it's hard, when it costs us, are we still following him then? Or do we just bleed back into the crowd and evaporate away? Are we true followers of Jesus? Or are we just empty, fair-weather fans like so many in the crowd that day? Well, what I did is I, as I closed here, I, I put together three diagnostic questions that I want you to ask yourself and wrestle with to know if you are a fan or a follower of Jesus. Here they are. Number one, when I became a Christian, did I make a decision to believe in Christ or did I make a commitment to follow Christ? Did I make a decision to just believe in Christ or a commitment to follow Christ? So many people today Uh, They believe that Jesus existed. They believe that Jesus died for their sin, but they believe it in the same way they believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States. It may be factually true, but it doesn't functionally make a difference in our life. What about you? Belief in Christ and commitment to follow Christ cannot be separated. 
in the Bible, they, they go together. But oftentimes in our modern world, we like to tear them apart. Fans will believe in Jesus, but followers will actually make a commitment to follow Jesus, even when it hurts. Question number two. Am I satisfied with knowledge about Jesus, or am I seeking intimacy with Jesus? Fans are content with information about God. Followers actually want to know God. Fans, they can probably quote all the books in the Bible from memory. Fans can do trivia really well. But you know, trivia doesn't matter. Information about Jesus is only there so we can get to know Jesus better. Intimacy means we actually pray and take time and make time to pray. Intimacy means we actually read God's word. And when we read God's word, we say, Jesus, please teach me what I need to know. Change me. Touch me. I want to become more like you. I don't just want more information. I want to know you. There's a big difference. Think of it this way. I'm not much of a football fan. My wife is. So I watch it because we get to spend some time together. And one of the teams she used to always like to watch was the Patriots, at least while Tom Brady was there. Amazing quarterback. I can tell you all kinds of information about Tom Brady. I can tell you he was born in the year 1977. He, attended, he grew up in Mateo, California. I can tell you that he has four children, that he played for the University of Michigan in college, Thanks to Wikipedia, I can rattle off lots of information about Tom Brady, but I don't know Tom Brady. And I don't have an opportunity to know Tom Brady. Because there's a inf- difference between information and intimacy. But here's where there's a difference. Tom Brady, I have no opportunity to get to know him. But we do have an opportunity to get to know God. Those who seek him will find him. He will meet with you. He will meet with me when we pursue intimacy with him. Information about him is good, but it's only there so we could get to know him better. Fans of Jesus are discontent with information about Jesus. But followers, true followers, pursue intimacy with him. Which one are you? A fan or a follower? The last point is this. Is Jesus one of many loves in my life or the one true love of my life? It says this in Luke 14, 25 and 26. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, his wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, this doesn't mean that we should literally hate other people, but it says that our love for Jesus is to me so much higher than anything else that it's like we hate other people. Think of it this way. It's like getting married. When you get married, you make a commitment to love your spouse, and they become the one true love of your life. And all other relationships become subservient and lesser in your life. Same thing with Jesus. For fans, Jesus is just one of many loves. But for followers, 
He is the one true love. Are you a fan? Are you a follower of Jesus? Fans can be filled with enthusiasm for him, but as soon as push comes to shove, it becomes difficult. They fall away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're reminded how 75% of Americans claim to be Christians. That doesn't mean they're followers of you, but it probably means they're fans of you. I pray that you would help us this morning not to be just fans who cheer for you when things are good, but followers who will walk with you all the way to the cross, even when times are tough, even when it's difficult to believe. We want to follow you all the way. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.